Welcome to the Movement Logic Podcast with yoga teacher and strength coach Laurel Beversdorf and physical therapist Dr. Sarah Court. With over 30 years combined experience in the yoga, movement, and physical therapy worlds, we believe in strong opinions loosely held, which means we're not hyping outdated movement concepts. Instead, we're here with up-to-date and cutting-edge tools, evidence, and ideas to help you as a mover and a teacher. Welcome to the Movement Logic Podcast. I'm Dr. Sarah Cork, physical therapist, and I'm here with my co-host, Laurel Beversdorf, strength coach and yoga teacher. So this is a listener-requested topic, this yes. episode. We're going to be talking about somatic dominance. Now, you may have already learned a lot about somatic dominance, or this might be the first time you're hearing about it. And in any event, we're coming at it today with our personal perspectives. And speaking of listener requests, hmm, you know what I would like to request of a listener? What's that? Any listener. Yeah. Every listener. Okay. If you want us to talk about something specific, hmm. the best way to go about it is to write a review. That's right. And in that review, say, hey, could you talk about this? Could you talk about shoulders more? Sure. Can I know a little bit more about the knees? Great. Things like that. We love that stuff. So if there's anything you want us to talk about, write a review and stick it in that review. We read all of them. We do. Okay. So back to this episode. And this is really the only time we've ever had to do this. I am putting in a little content warning here because this episode does contain references to physical and sexual abuse. So Matthew Remsky coined the phrase somatic dominance. And full disclosure, before we start this episode, Matthew is a colleague of both of ours. I gave some background to him on my experiences with Jiva Mukti Yoga for some of his writing. In particular, we spoke about the period of time when Sharon Gannon and David Life, who are the co-founders of Jiva Mukti Yoga, were working closely with Michael Roach, which was roughly 2007 to 2009. Matthew Remsky spent three years studying under Michael Roach and talks about it at length in his Conspirituality podcast, which is a great podcast. If you're not already listening to it, you should. It's one of my go-tos, my favorites. So if you've read Matthew's book, Practice and All is Coming, you will have probably experienced the same horror that I did when starting to unpack the abuse that so many people, and women in particular, suffered at the hands of BKS Iyengar, Patabi Joyce, and other yoga teachers in positions of power. And there is a lot to learn about the behaviors that led to this abuse and assault, and a lot of this has been brought to light by Matthew's investigations and by the bravery of the women who were abused in coming forward and speaking about what happened to them. And I'm going to link to all of the different pages and sources that I got this information from in this episode. What we're gonna talk about today though is a little more subtle. And Matthew does a really good job in his writings of helping to clarify that it's not just the big obvious abuses that constitute somatic dominance but these small behavioral shifts that we all make, consciously or not, to assert control over a room and what those shifts might look like. Because whether we like it or not, if we've taught a yoga class, we've probably asserted some amount of somatic either dominance or if it's not that extreme, maybe somatic influence over our students. So what is somatic dominance? Well, the word somatic is a word that means it's referring to the body especially as distinct 
from the mind. So you may have heard the phrase somatics or somatic movement, which is generally considered movement for the sake of movement, movement for its own sake. And I went down a rabbit hole with somatic movement and some some very bizarre claims around how somatic movement uses a, a highly specialized type of eccentric contraction and and that kind of broke my brain. Pendic- pendiculation. Oh my god. <laughs> and then like oh so thankfully this episode is not about somatic movement. Mm-hmm. I and I just want to say I really do enjoy all the somatic movements that I've learned. It's a lot of like love rolling and flowing and Feldenkrais. Yeah, feels good. Mm. I think there's just Maybe it's some you know, pseudoscience going on, and in any event, this is a movement style. It's a totally different thing from somatic dominance. So I just wanted to make that part really clear. Right on. Okay. Let's get Matthew Remsky's definition of somatic dominance, and that is the manner in which teachers assume possession and authority over students' bodies. And here's a quote from him. Somatic dominance is a primal, nonverbal deception that frames control as care. This same deception is perfected by the abusive, charismatic leader and their enablers, and in the worst cases, obscures the lines between lineage and intergenerational abuse, between devotion and trauma bonding. We briefly talked about this in our cueing part two episode when we were talking about hands-on cueing and the possibility of asserting somatic dominance that is sort of disguised as quote-unquote, assisting or deepening the experience or deepening the pose. And as we mentioned earlier, we see this often with men over women's bodies. We see it with teachers, male teachers over women's bodies. We see a lot of charismatic male leaders using tactics of bullying, physical, emotional, sexual assault. And we've seen in the past few years with the Me Too movement in particular, not just in the yoga world, but in all worlds, this abuse dynamic being brought to light. But somatic dominance doesn't have to be so overt and so aggressive. And when I was writing this episode, I remembered randomly this one experience I had at the Ojai Yoga Crib, which was a annual, like a yoga weekend where lots of teachers came into Ojai and, you know, you could take a class with this person and then I'd take an afternoon class. It was like a yoga conference, right? It was cool. Ojai's beautiful. So I think it was 2010, and there's this teacher named Eric Schiffman, and lots of people love him. I had never worked with him or even seen him before, so he was doing a lecture in the evening, and so I was like, well, I'm going to go to his lecture. So sitting in the room, he comes in, and he goes to the front of the room and sits in his chair, and then is just completely silent and doesn't say anything. And while he's being silent... Everyone else is also being silent because we're like, well, we're waiting for you to talk. And he spent, I mean, it was really, it was a long time. It was maybe 10 minutes of not talking, which is a really long time to be not talking when you're in front of a room of people who are expecting you to be talking. And what he was doing instead was kind of making a lot of intense eye contact with various people in the room, maybe people who were, and this is, I have no idea, but maybe it was like students of his that he recognized or people who, I don't know. It could literally be anything. I don't know. But I was sitting there and I wasn't saying anything because it's this social contract that we had all entered into. Mm. This man is here to talk. It's not my job to put my hand up and go, are you going to start talking anytime soon? I Although, mean, you, you totally could have. I kind of wish I had. <laughs> and honestly, 2023 Sarah Court probably would have. Uh, Much it. more likely than 2010 Sarah Court. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, it wasn't a verbal agreement that we weren't going to talk, but everyone just sort of fell under this like thing of, well, until he talks, we're not talking. And this was well after I was done with my experiences at Jeevan Mukti Yoga. And now, because of that experience, I had a pretty critical eye for this kind of thing. And so I was sitting there being like, what is this, like the second coming of Jesus Christ? Like, why are we all sitting here <laughs> waiting for this man to start talking? And the the experience for me was very off-putting. I did not enjoy it. And so I then kind of didn't, I didn't then value the rest of his lecture because it felt manipulative. Yes, it felt manipulative. And again, I don't know why he was doing it. I can't, I can't claim to know why he was doing it. He may not have meant to be manipulative, but I experienced it that way. Yeah, it seems sort of strange that, you know, someone like you and probably several other people in the room had never maybe heard of him or been to any of his offerings. And then you go in and there's someone on stage and you sit down and that's just usually not how it goes, where they just sit there and stare out and be quiet for 10 whole minutes. Long time. 10 whole minutes. Yeah. I found it weird. So that's an example of a kind of somatic, we can just call it influence, let's say, that is not the overt aggressive kind. You, I don't know if we could call it abusive, which is right. in Matthew's definition. Right. But that kind of lesser version of it, that, that not... Uh, actual physical abusive component of it can also be done by a woman. It doesn't have to be performed by a man. And in, for example, in one of his online writings, Matthew Ramsey talks about a video and he, he has the video so you can watch what he's talking about. Uh, Sharon Gannon, one of the co-founders of Jeeva Mukti, teaching a class. And when she enters the room, everybody in the room starts doing this very deep waist level bow with their hands in prayer and then looking up at her. So it's it's this very kind of, you know, you're making yourself smaller than the teacher. That's the idea. That is a very unsettling image. Well, what I find interesting about it as well as someone, I was involved in Jiva Mukti before Michael Roach and then during the Michael Roach period, and a little bit after. Can and you say a little bit about who Michael Roach is? Yes, yes. Let me finish this idea. Okay. And then I'm going to do a little bit about him and I'll stick it in earlier. All right. And so that bow was absolutely an influence from Michael Roach because it didn't used to happen. But when he came on the scene and the Jiva Mukti crowd saw Michael Roach's followers doing it to him, they adopted it and started doing it to Sharon and David as well. So that was that was definitely part of his influence. Michael Roach, if you don't know who he is, is a Buddhist teacher. He this is where it gets a little complicated in far as as far as how what title I give him because he there's a lot of debate about around whether he deserves or should have the role the title of Geshe, which is a Buddhist Tibetan Buddhist title. But he studied Tibetan Buddhism. He was in a monastery for a huge period of time. And then he came out and started teaching in the United States and in other countries. You know, you can, I would recommend, there's a great article in the New York Times that talks about him and his partner, Christy McNally. In essence, they created something they called Diamond Mountain University, but it kind of had cultish qualities. I'm getting that. And then there were some very strange things that happened and somebody died. Mm. And it's very problematic. 
Let's link that one in the show notes. I absolutely will. So this deep bow that everyone is doing to Sharon Gannon in this video, here's what Matthew Rumsey says about it. He says, right from the beginning of class, there is a contagious way to be there. It's sophisticated because it looks like respect, surrender, and even gentleness. And the teacher and some students might even feel all of those things deeply and authentically, but the impact is that the people in that room who show strong buy-in for what she's doing are now under her somatic influence. Hmm. And we are later on definitely going to in, uh, unpack the difference between what is somatic influence versus what is somatic dominance. It seems like you have to have somatic influence before you can have somatic dominance, maybe as a kind of step one. Yeah, but you don't have to transition as, to dominance. You, and, and ideally you don't. As a teacher, you have to have some amount of somatic influence because you are influencing the students in the room. Otherwise, you would just be another student, right? Right. But there's ways to do that, and that's what we're going to talk about, where we don't cross over into that dominance aspect. What this is making me think of, though, is that the other students in the room bowing in supplication are contributing to the influence. Absolutely. Because if you see everybody bowing, you probably are going to bow, right? If you see everybody else not talking, you're not going to talk. Right? And that's a really big part of somatic dominance is that you are impacted by the people around you as well as the teacher. Okay, so this is where I am going to spend a little time, Laurel, talking about my experience with Jiva Mukti Yoga. I'm here for it. Thank you. And if you're not familiar with Jiva Mukti Yoga, it is a very, God, how do I describe it? One, It was once described to me when I was told, I believe he was an Iyengar practitioner. I said, I do Jiva Mukti Yoga. He goes, oh, that rock and roll shit. And I said, yes, because it does have a rock and roll vibe. Sharon and David started in like the punk rock world of Seattle. Like they were badasses. Mm -hmm. And then they did a bunch of yoga. They had a, a huge influence on their lives. They started this style of yoga that they called Jivamukti Yoga. And it had several features that really differentiated it from other styles of yoga. One of the features is these very full-on intense physical assists or adjustments. This is not a, a light touch. This is not a guiding hand. This is something like lying your entire body onto someone's back while they are in Paschimottanasana. Forward fold. Forward fold, right? So you're putting your like half of your own body weight on top of somebody else's body in order to quote unquote deepen the experience for them. or standing with your own feet on somebody's upper thighs in Supta Virasana, reclining hero pose. Ouch. Yeah. Ah, literally ouch. Literally ouch. Laurel, have you ever taken a Jiva Mukti class or, or a class that was inspired by Jiva Mukti in terms of that intense level of, of physical adjustments? I did. When I was a brand new teacher, I got this book of coupons to yoga studios all over New York City where I got to try a class once or twice for free. Jiva Mukti was on there. I'd heard of it. Very famous studio near Union Square. And so, yeah, I took a class and it was really different than what I was used to. Tell me more. Well, I got a lot of adjustments and I wasn't used to that. Mm -hmm. They were pretty aggressive. I didn't get hurt, didn't hurt, but I was really overwhelmed a little bit with the amount of aggressive adjustments happening. And there was a point in class where a male instructor, we were all in pigeon, no props. Mm -hmm. And he said, if it doesn't hurt, you're not doing it right. 
And then we stayed there for a very long time. I think I lost circulation to my foot. It did start to hurt, but I knew sure. I knew better at that point. I knew that that wasn't right. I knew that this place was a little fucked up. So I didn't go back. Um, but it definitely left an impression on me. It gave me some perspective on what some people think yoga is. Or some people's experience. pretty sure that's not what I thought it yeah. was. So these very intense physical adjustments, we learned them in our teacher training. I, I did them on people. I had them done on me. Jiva even had a thing called an in-class private where if you were taking the class, you had a second teacher, not the person leading the class, but someone who was working just with you. And they were doing these intense adjustments on you for the entire class. So every single pose you were doing was getting, quote unquote, deep. Right. That sounds exhausting for the practitioner and the teacher. Yeah. I mean, it's it's intense, but the intensity was there. That was kind of their thing, mm -hmm. right? And so in, in essence, if I try to, you know, give this some sort of like musculoskeletal context, when you get yourself into a shape, you're using something called active range of motion. You're moving yourself there under your own steam. You're going as far as you are able to on your own. There is something called active assisted range of motion, which is when I help you get a little further into it. And for most shapes, your body stops you, your muscle spindles stop you with about 5% more potential movement into that range. So because your, your nervous system is like, we're not going to that full capacity because who knows what's going to happen there. We're going to stop a little bit short of it. It's like the stoplight is not right in the middle of the intersection or the line, the stop line at an intersection is right in the middle of the intersection. It's before the intersection, right? Yes. So it's like stop before you go too far. Exactly. This is, you know, doing this kind of extra stretch on people, it might feel good, which to, if you are somebody who likes the feeling of stretch, which not everybody does, it probably feels good to you, but it doesn't have a lot of value. It's not then, you're not then more stretchy having done it for, for any measurable amount of time. You're also not able to control that amount of movement, right? And very arguably, I mean, nobody was measuring, is this 5% more? You were just encouraged to push. Hmm. And it was kind of not acceptable to not allow the assist to happen. The only circumstances that would have been acceptable would be something like, I broke my ankle. Or you would have to have a very serious kind of an injury. Did you need a note from the doctor? I mean, no, but I mean, I wish you kind of did, <laughs> frankly. I wish any doctor was anywhere near any of this. It was understood that if you were taking the class, part of that being in that room was that you were agreeing to these deep assists, these deep adjustments. And the only people that I ever saw getting just a straight up pass were like the celebrity yoga teachers who would come and take class because they weren't Jiva Mukti teachers or Jiva Mukti students per se. So for whatever reason, they got to be like, no, thank you. What? Yeah. And I, let's be clear, people got injured from it. And I have an injury in my neck that happened in teacher training because from day one of teacher training, we were doing 10 minute shoulder stands and five minute head stands every single day with no props. That seems like a lot it is a to lot. start with. It's a lot. Uh, like a lot, a lot. And nobody teaching or practicing had any qualifications beyond yoga certification. There was no discussion particularly in teacher training as to the physiological effect of these assists or the possibility of injuring someone with your assists. Were you ever injured from an assist? Because you were injured from doing too much of yes. a pose, but were you ever injured when someone actually like put their hands on you? I wasn't, but I knew people that had been. Hmm. And this was the general tone of the general agreement 
of the teacher training was that you were not questioning anything. And the reason I know this is because on day one or day two of the teacher training, I had a question. And <laughs> I'm sorry, I have a question. No, I had a question. And it was about, they were using the word God. And Jiva Mukti Yoga is a purposely spiritual practice. They're like, the practice of yoga is to, has a spiritual end. And I was like, cool, I'm in. But then they're using the word God. And I started to think about people have feelings about the word God, not always positive. And so I can't remember what my question was, but it was about the use of the word God. And I basically immediately got shut down hmm. by Sharon. The answer that I got was essentially like, don't ask questions. You have to let us just teach this to you. Hmm. And I had so much kind of confusion and discomfort in those first few days of, of the teacher training because there's so much coming at you. I finally on day three, and I remember, I remember this happening. And in retrospect, now I know what happened. On day three, I gave up. I gave up any attempt to ask questions, to try to maintain any sort of control over my own body. So day three was when I gave them somatic dominance over me. Hmm. In that moment... It seems like your only alternative would have been to leave the training. Yeah. Yeah. And in that moment, it actually felt good. Hmm. Because what felt bad was all of this cognitive dissonance that I was having. All right. of this confusion. All of this like, well, wait a minute. They're saying this, but they're doing this. And I don't... This is, seems really insane. And there's no... T there's hardly enough time for sleeping. There's no time to do anything except eat and then run to the next thing. What is happening? And I wanted to learn what they were teaching. I, I had had a really good experience as a student before I became a teacher. And so the only way for that to happen, it seemed, was for me to just kind of give over. Hmm. And so that's what I did. The word Jiva Mukti or Jivan, uh, Jivan Mukta is a person who is liberated while living, someone who attains enlightenment while they're still in a human body form. And so there was this striving towards this. That's what we were all supposed to be going for. But what it meant, a lot of the time, anything that showed up as, as less than this sort of liberated while living person would just be attributed to, well, that's your karma. Karma was thrown around a lot as a like, well, you know, why did I lose my car keys? Well, the, karmically in the past, you threw someone's car keys away. And so now you've lost your car keys. What a convenient response. And, you know, I, I remember specifically one time in a, in a different workshop with Sharon, somebody asked Sharon, they said, you know, I've got this pain behind my shoulder blade. What is that from? And she gave a kind of very convoluted, completely non-musculoskeletal answer that essentially ended with, it's your karma. And so pain was very often relabeled as healing. For example, during the teacher training, we practiced seated meditation starting at 20 minutes a day. And I, I don't remember exactly, but I believe building up to 30, maybe 40 minutes. And this was before I knew exactly what was going on with my hip. I had hip dysplasia. This was before I had any understanding of the fact that I had arthritis in my hip. And it was very uncomfortable for me. And the senior teacher who was assigned to be my mentor, I would talk to her about it. And then eventually, I think what happened was I just, because her, her response was never like, oh, well, let's find you a better position that doesn't hurt. Her response was, you know, you just need to push through, basically. Like the teacher who told you, like, if 
pigeon, if it doesn't hurt, you're not doing it right or something like that, yeah, right? Yeah, it's your fault. Yeah. And so I think what I did in that in that very confusing time was I just kind of absorbed the pain into my own psyche till I didn't actually feel it anymore. Hmm. And then I was praised by her when I stopped talking about it. Hmm. So you, you think you stopped feeling the pain? Like, did you remember, like, you actually did stop feeling the pain? I stopped feeling the pain, but I don't think... You kind of dissociated. I think that's exactly what I did, is that I sort of dissociated myself away from the pain. And, you know, since then, I've had multiple hip surgeries. I've had a hip replacement. Like, there's literally things wrong with my hip, or there mm-hmm. were, right? But that was not anywhere in their, you know, in their mode of yoga. And to be fair to David and Sharon, they would argue exactly the same thing. They would say, yeah, no, that's not what we do. So it wasn't handled particularly well. And and any physical discomfort was explained as kind of too, you're too attached to your physical form you should you want to go beyond this physical body and so dissociation from your physical form was actually really encouraged mm-hmm. and there were lots of sort of miracle stories about senior teachers that healed their pain using jivamukti yoga and this dismissal of the physical experience was enabled throughout all of the teachers and, and all of the senior teachers i remember one time taking a class from a senior teacher And during that class, one of my teacher training cohorts, someone who was in teacher training with me, so this was after our training, he was practicing those hands-on physical assists on me during class, which is what we would do all the time, right? Before we we mauled our students, Mm -hmm. we practiced it on each other. So he was doing those on me. And she came over at one point to change how he was assisting me. So he was assisting me in rotated chair rotated Utkatasana. And the way we learned to do it is you would take your legs, your thighs, and you would basically like clamp onto the sides. You'd go behind the person doing the chair pose, the rotated chair. You would clamp your legs around the sides of their hips in order to hold their pelvis in place, theoretically. And then you would use your hands to increase the rotation of their spine. And she, when she came over, she changed the way that he was doing it so that instead one of his knees was actually between my legs and his leg ended up pressing up against my vulva. And he said something to her to the effect of, I I don't, we were in the middle of a class. I don't think he used the word vagina out loud, but he said something along the lines of, I'm touching her. I'm I'm like touching her, Mm -hmm. touching her. Like Mm -hmm. it was very clear that that's what he meant. He didn't Mm -hmm. mean like, my hands are touching her back. He meant my leg is touching the intimate part of her body. And he was uncomfortable. He was uncomfortable. And you were uncomfortable. Here's what's crazy. Mm. I actually wasn't uncomfortable. Uh. Because I had taken any potential discomfort and just shoved it so deep inside that I took everything that happened in Jiva Mukti mm. as something that was getting me towards an enlightened experience. And this was an opportunity for me to not be attached to my physical form. He was uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I should have been uncomfortable, but I wasn't. I mean, I'm not blaming myself, but, you know, he expressed it to the teacher. The teacher basically ignored him. And he did the assist. And then we moved on. And neither one of us discussed it afterwards. Me and my fellow teacher that was doing the assist. And I believed that this was all in service of my own enlightenment. And this is what somatic dominance does. It requires a student to ignore any any questions about what might be happening like hey should this man's knee really be touching my genitals and it teaches you to just behave with unquestioning obedience and to take part in this kind of magical thinking that 
all of this, including this experience, is leading to my spiritual growth. Hmm. Now, here's what I want to say very clearly. I do not blame my cohort member for doing this. Mm -hmm. I am not sitting here being like, this person abused me. Right. I think the abuse was much higher in the hierarchy. Yeah. I just want to be very clear. I'm not sitting here being like, this man abused me. I, I am sitting here being like, this system of yoga contains a lot of problems, including a lot of turning a blind eye and dismissal of behavior that is essentially abusive. It creates conditions both inside the student and inside the cohort where abuse can happen very easily. Yeah. Often in somewhat mundane circumstances like let's practice hands on assists. Right. There are larger forces at play with regards to how that happened, I think is what you're saying. Right? Yeah. And when I tell these stories, I'm very aware that it sounds pretty close to the kinds of things that you hear happening in cults. And I would argue, and Matthew would agree with me, Matthew Remsky, that, that Jiva Mukti is kind of like a cult light mm -hmm. because you've got charismatic leaders, you've got an army of followers who deeply believe in the cause, and you've got no questioning allowed. And I'm also aware that the, the easiest response is, why the hell would you let this happen? Right? Mm -hmm. Which is what a lot of people say when they watch a documentary about cults. Why would these people let this happen? Are they stupid? The, the, the cult members. Yes. Why would they let this happen to them? And what's very interesting is a lot of people in cults are actually very intelligent. Yeah. <laughs> Weirdly. But the only answer that I can really give is it's the boiling frog, right? Mm. If that had happened to me in the very first Jiva Mukti class I ever walked into, I would have been like, these people are fucked in the head and I would have walked out of there. But it didn't. Mm. I had tons of great experiences as a student. And then I had a very intense teacher training experience which also resembled what you know they do in a cult where they remove you from your you know regular surroundings we went to omega institute in upstate new york and we stayed there for a month <laughs> and this was the time i mean this was a there was not good cell service we didn't have tv there was no internet there were no i remember trying to make a phone call and you had to stand like on this one spot on top of a tree trunk and like then you get like one bar like we were very cut off mm -hmm. and we were very immersed in the experience because you had very little time to do. I remember I always had indigestion because the hour that we had for lunch, half of that I had to do laundry. Wow. So I would, I just was always, or I would do something else, right? Like my homework. So I was always shoveling food down and then trying to use some more time to do something else. So this kind of, uh, you know, this is a, a pretty standard cult practice where you separate people from their friends and family. And I wanted what was being promised, which was this experience of peace and wholeness and spiritual growth. And so then the way that I was mentored to teach as I was becoming a teacher was very much as you as the teacher are controlling the room, hmm. which to some extent is true because if you walked into the room as a teacher and you just started practicing yoga and you didn't say anything, then you're not really teaching. It would be very confusing for the students right. in the room, right? But there wasn't really any discussion around like power dynamics or how to make language or cueing choices that might be inclusive versus exclusive or anything like that. And I, I do clearly remember after teacher training, the very first class that I taught, when I told people to get into a pose and they did it, I was like, I was so struck by like, wow, I am in a power position, mm. but nobody told me how to not abuse it. Right. 
And Jivamukti also did the what they sort of refer to as the Dharma talk at the beginning of class, which a lot of other styles of yoga kind of did as well. But essentially, you know, they would have a, a, a monthly topic, if I remember. And, and so you were encouraged to speak around that topic. And the topic might be something like ahimsa, nonviolence. It might be part of a yoga sutra or something like that. But then you're also establishing yourself as this sort of teacher, this spiritual teacher right from the start when your experience with this is, you know, what? couple of months old, right? right? You're, you're far from being an expert. I would contrast that with after teaching class, going into like the back admin area and seeing Sharon yelling at one of the front desk people about something that I knew had nothing to do with them. But this would get explained away as sometimes you will see your teacher doing things that you don't understand, mm. right? Like there was always an explanation for something. Mm. And it was a lot easier in that moment to just be like, I mean, I guess that's a thing than to be like, what? Right. What are you talking about? And so anyone who's using somatic dominance tactics, they're banking on you having poor enough self-esteem that you're just going to go along with it. Yeah. And luckily for me, I actually hit a point where I was like, you know what? I'm out of this because there's just there's too many examples of things that just I saw that were, in my opinion, just wrong. And not only were you not really allowed to, you know, fight back about it, but who were you going to go to? There was no HR department. Right. There was no oversight committee, right? There's nobody There's nobody to complain about. And if you did complain, you were the one at fault, mm -hmm. pretty much, right? So people learned not to complain. I do remember thinking at the time that there were a lot of people who were looking specifically, well, a lot of people look to yoga to improve their lives in some way. There are a lot of people at Jiva Mukti, in my opinion, who were looking to that practice because it had a spiritual component overtly as something that was going to make their lives better. And Jiva Mukti kind of explained the being in the world as, you know, everybody else who's not engaging in this kind of practice is engaging in the world in a self-centered or shallow manner. And so that's they're not seeing the, the reality of what could be and so here with our spiritual practice that's what we're doing and i remember thinking you know if you have some sort of mental health issue of course the rest of the world doesn't make sense to you mm -hmm. and you don't make sense to the rest of the world and here are these people these very charismatic people surrounded by people who seem to adore them mm -hmm. who are saying of course it didn't work because the world is wrong come in here mm. and you're going to learn what's right. And there there absolutely were a lot of people in and around the studio over the years who, you know, I'm not a psychotherapist and I knew a lot less then than I do now, but I certainly like, could, could tell that they had some sort of mental health issue that was not being addressed. And it certainly wasn't being addressed by Jeeva Mukti Yoga. Okay, I'm going to take a breather because <laughs> that was a lot. I, I've actually never told anybody any of that before. Well, thank you for sharing. Thanks. I want to contrast this <laughs> with your experience yeah. as a teacher and your teacher training because you worked for a more corporate yoga company. A very corporate yoga company. Can you tell us more about what that was like? Yeah, I mean, listening to your story and everything that was able to go down at Jiva Mukti, that would never have flown where I taught because a corporate business is structured so that there is kind of a system of checks and balances where people 
in higher positions of power are keeping people in lower positions of power in check. And so there's an HR department. It's also a corporation. So the bottom line is king, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. in other words, they don't want to get sued. Okay. So if you do this kind of shady shit, you're increasing the likelihood of that corporation getting sued and that's going to hurt their bottom line. It's going to hurt their reputation. And so it's just a little bit more, I would even say decentralized in the sense that these leaders of a corporation are answering sometimes to investors at that point, this was not a publicly traded co company, but in other words, bosses have bosses, mm -hmm. right? And Sharon and David had no bosses and they were also the teachers, right? So I had to answer to a manager. A manager had to answer to a manager for the region or regional manager had to answer to, you know, you see what I'm saying here. So that system of checks and balances maybe shielded me from some of this type of thing occurring. Now, that's not to say that I didn't occasionally experience or witness somatic dominance in the classrooms of this studio that I taught for. I, I certainly did, but I was never, thankfully, a part of this type of experience and things weren't carried out to this extent from my perspective now and i'm only going to speak from my perspective so i'm grateful for that and and i do think that you know of course largely this depends on the people that i encountered and the way that they approach teaching yoga but ultimately I, I do think that the structure of the company i worked for and the structure of the studio that you worked for the difference between those structures may actually have really kept me safe, kept other students safe, simply because there's accountability. Yeah. <laughs> really. Yeah, absolutely. At the end of the day, there's, there's accountability is built into the business model. Yeah. So the way that this somatic dominance was practiced and exploited at Jiva Mukti was at one end of the spectrum of this sort of large spectrum of maybe starting on one side with somatic, let's call it influence versus going all the way to the end to somatic dominance. But there are you know, these smaller, subtler ways that we all may have been either on the receiving end or that we have done that have perhaps been received as more dominant or domineering than we intended. Mm -hmm. For example, and this is something that I, I've talked about this with a few different people. And, uh, and let me be clear, I've only spoken about this with other women, but I am not the only person who has done this. So if you've gotten a massage, and the massage therapist is doing something that actually like hurts or is a little too hard. Do you just let them do it? Or mm. do you speak up about it? I mean, I am a clinician and yet I never speak up. Hmm. You just sort of let it happen. Yeah. Grin and bear it or yeah. don't grin and bear it. Yeah. Grit your teeth and bear it. There's definitely been points when receiving a massage where I was like, oh, it's a little, it's a little too much. Um, I've experienced very few massages. Uh, it's not really my thing. I'm not a big fan of lying on a table and having someone. I'm not sure if I value receiving massage as much, even giving myself one with like a pair of therapy balls. But um, I will say that I have been in uncomfortable situations while receiving a massage where I wasn't really quite sure that what was happening was even appropriate, actually, mm -hmm. that it hadn't been communicated to me ahead of time. And I kind of didn't really speak up to the fullest extent that I, looking back, maybe now realize that I could have. So this idea that we can always just say no is, I understand that to be not true, yeah. right? because there 
are forces at play, power dynamics at play. They're actually incredibly powerful in the moment that whose power diminishes retrospectively when you look back at them and go like, but, but so this is where like when it's happening and after the fact really dip are different. Yeah. And certainly in yoga classes where I just endured too strong of an adjustment. This mm -hmm. could be another example where I really kind of wanted to say that's enough, but I didn't. And then they went a little bit further and I was like, that was too much. That didn't feel great. Situations where even like potentially um, in, in more exercise, kind of traditional exercise type formats where I don't want to push harder, mm -hmm. but I'm being yelled at to push harder mm -hmm. and I'm pretty sure I've had enough. Mm -hmm. You know, these these are subtler examples of that. Yeah. The one time I ever took a spin class, I realized that I was not the right person to take a spin class because <laughs> you were in charge of the intensity. You could dial it up or dial it down. And the teacher kept wanting us to dial it up and I just kept dialing it down mm -hmm. because I was like, what do you, you don't know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what do you know? Make me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> really big part of my personality is, is make me. <laughs> so then another category might be what I know as Laurel. The yoga voice. The Inhale, voice. exhale. Yes, or even just slowing your voice down, making it more mellifluous, <laughs> and going up of the register and down the register, and in effect speaking in a way that is very sing-songy and unlike the way that you talk normally. <laughs> right? There is that yoga voice, and I think a lot of teachers, I mean, I certainly imitated the yoga voice sometimes and, <sighs> and you are there is a it is a, a sort of energetic feeling in the room that you're creating mm -hmm. and, similar to lighting and music and incense exactly and, and the the understanding of anybody walking into that room is that you don't talk too loud you don't make too much noise you move your props quietly you're respectful of the general vibe that the teacher is setting up in that room for mm -hmm. everyone to have mm -hmm. their experience of there's a social contract to that right i remember seeing like brand new students come like plumping into the room and the teacher would like swishly like run over and be like shh you know yeah. so yeah. if they you get very upset yes yeah, so if you didn't know you were taught real fast that yeah. that's not how you enter a yoga room right yeah so there's that right and that's a type of control over the room yes it's not a bad type necessarily but it is you're you're creating something right right well the the, the voice though is is really mm, it's a little off-putting because it's so inauthentic right it is not a true expression yeah and there's something kind of that gets under your skin with that after a while where you're like i find it deeply annoying now yeah it's yeah. super annoying yeah. and it, you're you're i think in a, in a way kind of putting yourself on a pedestal of like i am somehow calmer than you because listen to my voice <laughs> <laughs> don't you want to feel like me i'm the yoga teacher and this is how i feel it's like a register lower yes and slower and you take the edge off it's a whole bunch of things yeah yeah well so then what about if you're teaching a training or a workshop and somebody in the class questions what you're doing hmm. right like you know i got very quickly shut down hmm. how how do we each respond well the reality is that when you're starting out as a teacher if a student questions you which that rarely happens in a like a group class like gen pop class we'll say yeah is a newer teacher trainer i mean i definitely went through a period of being a newer teacher trainer um 
there were times when students would question me and where they were kind of questioning me somewhat aggressively, like they were confused or frustrated or whatever it was, tired maybe. Mm. They were like, I don't understand. I, why? Okay. And, or that's different from what I've heard. In the beginning, it was tough for that not to ruffle my feathers. My response was not to shut them down. It was to try to explain it in another way. But what I was drawing from were just pretty much what I had been told mm. or what was in the manual or what I knew at that time to be true. And I think how I evolved was now, like, I'm, first of all, not afraid of student questions. I welcome them. I like them. I consider them the student's contribution to the discussion and that students are important contributors to the learning process for the other students in the room, right? So I figured out that it's not an attack on me when someone is unsure of what they're learning and why. And so I like to take an opportunity to, you know, look at the question and propose a couple of possible ways to look at it, um, to frame it maybe a little bit more specifically to what we're talking about, maybe to zoom back out and frame it the way they framed it and really use the question as a jumping off point for some type of group inquiry. And maybe that question causes another per person to ask a question, then pretty soon students are kind of dialoguing to, to each other about it, right? So it becomes it becomes the topic of discussion. And, and you know, there's a board, there's borderline where that might start to veer you too off track of the lesson that you're trying to teach. And so it's, it's constantly a, an act of trying to manage the time and make the learning relevant to the people in the room. Uh, and still get across what your plan was to get across, what the what the work is about, what the content is about. So it's tough. It's tough not to feel threatened. And it's tough not to go into that fight or flight mode, frankly, where you're like, this person's questioning my authority. I'm potentially feeling some level of shame now because I'm questioning my authority because I'm not really sure what to say. Especially if you're new. And you know what? Frankly, it's easiest perhaps for some folks to just say, this is not the time for questions. Or I don't answer questions. I don't take questions. Or could you just wait and find out or to be kind of defensive about it? Sure. You know, like it's tough for a teacher that's new to self-regulate while the stakes feel so high and while they don't yet have the experience or tools to be able to self-regulate and stay calm and juggle all of these competing interests in the room. And it's tough. maybe you only have one answer. And so when the student says, well, what about this? You have nothing else to say. <laughs> and that's not yeah. a great feeling. No, it's not. Uh, it can, you can feel embarrassed by that, right? Yeah. You can feel unprepared. You can feel any number of things. And so it can be easy to then turn that around and be like, we're not doing questions right now. Or, or you're kind of, the problem. Right, exactly. <laughs> you're the problem with your question that I can't answer because <laughs> I don't know enough. Okay. So... Yeah, I mean, I think I think that does come with experience and that ability to be open enough to questions is, I think it takes time. Mm -hmm. I think it takes time. Uh, what about if you are getting a student to mirror you in a pose? Is that somatic influence? To make their body look like my body somehow. Yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, definitely, yeah. And to suggest that that's the right way to do it mm -hmm. for sure is. Um, I don't necessarily think imitation, like the, just do what I'm doing is a form of somatic, definitely not somatic dominance on its own. I mean, anytime we're moving and asking students to kind of follow along, that we're, we are influencing them, as yeah. we've said, but 
where it maybe enters into the realm of control for control's sake is when we perhaps think that there is one way that they should look and it should look like your body doing it because that's the correct way. And then you start to potentially set up this dichotomous way of thinking about it. Like this way is right and this way is wrong and my way is the right way. And so I'm gonna micromanage your body in the moment. This is reminding me of our conversation about feedback and mm -hmm. bandwidth mm -hmm. and how if you don't give the student room enough, bandwidth enough to get it quote unquote wrong, maybe to do it the way that you aren't trying to teach them to do it. Maybe there is a purpose behind why you're trying to teach them to do it the way you're teaching them. But if you don't ever let them explore and kind of get it wrong, they'll never be able to feel the edges of right, right? Mm -hmm. They'll never be able to feel the edges of what you are trying to teach. And it's not in service of learning as we've found out, like literally that does not promote motor learning. It's really in service of control. Yeah. And I had to unlearn that and learning a lot of learnings about unlearning. I, I, I learned to teach with an alignment approach, alignment-based teaching style. And I was taught to, in, an, in effect, micromanage position in the room and really over cue and say way too much. And I realized that, okay, after learning about the body and how it adapts and changes and how posture is not predictive of pain, I could kind of let go intellectually of this purpose of needing to fix alignment for the sake of safety. Mm. I could step away from that. I could make that leap. It was actually incredibly difficult to change my teaching style though, because I was attached to control. Letting students just do the thing and look the way they looked meant that I had to relinquish control. I literally had to almost lower my somatic influence in order for there to be more balance in the room in terms of who was calling the shots. And yeah, the transition was tough and it took a long time, it took years, right? It got better as time went on. But I have to say, man, teaching is a lot more relaxed and a lot more fun now because it's exhausting. It's actually exhausting to really not be teaching, but constantly maintaining control. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. So then going forwards, now that we're all of us you know, more aware of these concepts of somatic influence, somatic dominance, one of the things that I think is, is you, because, you know, what can start to happen is you maybe are listening to this conversation. You're going, well, shit, I should never teach again because I'm, am I, what am I doing? Am I being too controlling? Am I dominating these people? Am I, mm -hmm. what am I, you know, it, it can get easy to just be like, well, I, how do you do this and not do that? Because that seems terrible and I don't want to be that person, right? Mm -hmm. Certainly a, a starting place would be if you, if you want to examine your own teaching, and, and kind of examine, okay, am I unconsciously doing some of these things? You want to look at, I would say, two qualities You want to, or, or two aspects. You want to look at the language that you're using and you want to look at the touch, hands-on touch. So if we talk about language, the choices that you use in your language can be much more inclusive and can give students agency you can create an environment that is that is open. That can, is. Can we play a game? Sure. I'll give a cue that is very directive uh -huh. that doesn't allow for a lot of agency, and cool. you translate it. Great. Step your feet four feet apart. Take your feet as wide apart that feels like a good wide distance for you. 
Bend your knees to 90 degrees. Stack your knee directly over your ankle. You're going to bend your front knee. Lift your arms up shoulder level. Move your shoulder blades away from your ears. Lengthen your neck by reaching the crown of your head as high up toward the ceiling as possible. Inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale. So what if we try this? If you bring your arms out to the height of your shoulders, how can you make that feel more expansive for you? How can you feel like you're, you're taking up more space? What, what would that look like, right? So it's a lot less, what are they called when you, it's got a grammar term. Um, Directives? Yes, it's a lot less directive language and it's it, a lot more inclusive. I, I would say inductive. Like, Isn't that like a kind of oven? Inductive reasoning, that's a condu conductive? I, oh yeah. Convection. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess, uh, I believe, and I might be wrong, inductive reasoning is to present evidence and then go, what do you think? What do you make of that? Right. And deductive is to present, hmm, I might be wrong with this, but deductive might be to present the answer Okay. and then to work backwards and go, well, what supports that? Or let's support this answer with evidence. Right, so sure. let's go back to this idea of the type of verb. So instead of a verb that is do this, right. put your foot here, move your arm here, you're going to use verbs that are more... Invitational. Yes. More, let's see how this feels. What if you try this? Or let's find a version of this that is more comfortable on your body. For you. Right. For you. So that's those are the, the language choices. Leaving things a little bit more open to interpretation. Exactly. And then if we talk about, you know, are you going to put your hands on your students? Are you not going to put your hands on your students? Many teachers' trainings still teach hands-on assists. Hands-on assists are not automatically evil. But because of my experience, I backed away from them for a very long time. I just completely stopped doing them because mm -hmm. I had to kind of recalibrate what, what I thought I was doing mm -hmm. as a teacher. And I knew that this kind of aggressive... There, nobody was asking whether I wasn't asking anybody whether they wanted it or not. People were just getting it, mm -hmm. and I knew that that was not it, it, that was another way of asserting control, mm -hmm. right? And it was something that I had personally, obviously, say experienced as like a negative experience. So mm -hmm. I, I kind of just completely stopped doing it. And then when I started doing more hands-on things again, I I became like um, like my experience of a gynecologist mm -hmm. is that this is maybe not the right example for this for this <laughs> episode, but but stay with me, everybody, stay with me. <laughs> When I've gone to the gynecologist, they usually tell you what they're doing either while they're doing it or right before they're doing it, right? I'm going to be inserting this. Yes. You will feel this kind of a pressure. Here, my, I'm going to put my two fingers. They're just, they're, they're verbalizing what's happening. So I most recently not, had a mammogram and that was definitely the case. Yeah. The technician was like very like, and now this will happen. Yeah. And now this will happen. And now we will squeeze your boobs. Ugh. They didn't say that obviously. Well, no. But I knew it was coming. You knew. I mean, that's the deal. <laughs> it's the big boob squeezing machine. <laughs> But so now, so, so, so I almost like over verbal, I kind of like verbal diarrhea. I tell the people so much about what's going to happen. I get the feeling sometimes they're like, just do it already. Like, stop <laughs> telling me so much about it. But I ask people, I'll be like, I want to, you know, uh, we're going to, I'm going to put my hands on your shoulders to guide you in this direction. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. And again, it's a social setting. They may not feel like they can say no. But I think just the fact that I'm asking mm -hmm. indicates that I'm not going to go in there like a bulldozer and knock them over or push them past where they could go it, themselves. It's a lot better than not asking at all. Yeah. Yeah. 
do you do that when you're doing hands-on? Or I know you're not doing hands-on at the moment, but you know, back when you did. Not a ton. Yeah. So when I started off teaching, by the way, we, in my training, never learned these really super aggressive adjustments. In fact, we were really strongly encouraged away from them. Mm. The adjustments we would give would be more bringing awareness to some part of the body, move toward this direction with, you know, using kind of touch, light touch on the hands, move more in this direction. And so uh, in the beginning, no, I wasn't asking permission at all. I was kind of just going up and helping people. Uh, I, that's how I saw it. And then there was a you know, a couple of things changed in society where we started to have different conversations about consent and the Me Too movement and all of these stories started to come out from people who had been abused, victims, right? And, and I started to actually see that my hands-on assists could be presented much more clearly with a lot more transparency and that I could handle a lot more consent to my students. I actually backed further and further away though from touching my students because I figured out that I could actually use other things that could have them touch themselves with other things like ball, therapy balls, blocks, blankets, walls, and, um, and, and receive information, different information, obviously, without me having to kind of insert myself into their experience in that that kind of a way. Although, like you said, I think that hands-on assists have a place. I think they're actually incredibly powerful modes of communication and they can create, when done well, a really strong connection trust mm -hmm. between teacher and student. And um, so, yeah, I definitely don't want to throw them out. No. But we need to be more careful, more responsible with how we're presenting them for sure. Yeah. And in my practice as a physical therapist, which I spend a lot more time doing nowadays than I do teaching yoga, it's understood that part of the physical therapy is that I am going to be putting my hands on them. But I always ask before I ever touch anybody, is it okay if I put my hands on you? Mm -hmm. So that they can say no. Everyone basically always says yes. And some of them act, some of them sort of are like, of course it is. Like, why wouldn't it be? Mm -hmm. But it is. it has become just, to me, vitally important that I do that. Mm -hmm. Not every PT does it, mm -hmm. but it's something that, because of my experiences, is meaningful to me. And mm -hmm. so I'm going to give everybody the benefit of the possibility that they may have had some physical abuse yeah. trauma in their past and that not all touch is received in the same way that it was intended. No, it's not. All right. Well, I hope you have maybe not enjoyed this episode, but maybe learned some things from this episode. You know, it, it is very, very meaningful to me personally to be able to describe my experience and talk about it because it's it's not something that I really talk about ever. And so I, I appreciate your attention and your willingness to listen to this. And I appreciate Laurel as well for letting me talk about it. Hey, thanks for sharing. Thank you. A note to you listeners, you can check out our show notes for everything that I referenced, we mentioned and referenced during this podcast. You can always go visit the Movement Logic website and get on our mailing list. Finally, it helps us out if you liked this episode to subscribe and rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks, everybody. We're going to go have a drink now.